By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam Young Golf. This episode of The Sweet Spot is sponsored by Shop Indoor Golf. You can find them at shopindoorgolf.com. They've got pretty much every major brand of golf simulator and launch monitor, whether you're looking for something high-end like a Foresight GC Quad, Skytrack, Unicore, they've got it all. And they've got all kinds of impact screens, hitting nets, and do-it-yourself kits. So if you're looking to build your own simulator on home on the cheap or you want a premium, version, they can help you out. So thanks for their support and check them out at shopindoorgolf.com. Adam, we've got the man with us today. We've got Andrew Rice. What's up, Andrew? Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, really uh, excited to be joining you both and uh, looking forward to some good banter. We have a global audience. I'm getting sick of Adam's Welsh accent. And if I'm being quite honest, the South African accent is my favorite in all my travels. So <laughs> oh, you're, John, you're the man. I must agree. Eh? What can I say? <laughs> it's just so nice. I mean, we already had Dylan Fratelli on. You're number two. We're going to have to get our mutual friend, Mark Immelman, on here. Another smooth talking oh, yeah. South African. Top notch. He's top notch, man. So, you know, most people... I've learned a ton from you as a, as you're a renowned swing coach and you know, you have great information on the golf swing, but we're going to pigeonhole you a little bit in this episode, because I think you're a great communicator on wedge play. You've done a ton of research there. So if that's okay in this episode, we're going to focus a bit on your wedge play takeaways because I think they're very helpful. Sounds good, John. I know you put something out on Twitter and you asked your listeners to post some questions and 
really, I thought they did a fantastic job coming up with some great questions and it gave me a little bit of headway time to help prepare some of my answers. So hopefully we're going to go with that. But really, they did come up with some good questions. So yeah, for sure. Let's go Wedges. Looking forward to it. We have an incredibly smart, well-thought audience that loves to ask good questions. So keep the questions coming. I think where I'd like to start, and I'm sure Adam will have a ton of questions as well. You had a pretty nice playing career. I know, you know, growing up in South Africa and when you came to the United States, you played at a very high level. And then you transitioned to coaching where you've become, you know, one of the top swing coaches and just, you know, an overall coach. Generic question I'd like to start is, what did you used to think about wedge play? You know, growing up, the things you were taught. And what do you think about it now with, you know, you've had access to Trackman, and I know you're a ping guy, you've had access to their research. Yeah. What are some things that stand out to you that we used to believe about wedge play that are not necessarily wrong anymore, but maybe they're not optimal, but what are some of the big things that's changed for you? John, the level of understanding is uh, significantly deepened for me. There are days where I'm trying to hit wedge shots for my own purposes, where I go, I, I wish I could go back to that 16-year-old kid who knew nothing and just could hit wedge shots. You know, didn't think, didn't understand, but just found a way to get it done. So it's almost got to be a case of all or nothing. And certainly I think if you're a coach, it's got to be more to the all end of the spectrum. It's interesting, I spoke to a player a couple of months ago who's won a major championship, and we were talking about pitch shots and the thing that really has opened my eyes is the understanding of we've all hit that 50-yard pitch shot, for example, that comes off the face really low. It feels great. The ball literally sticks to the face. We know that it's going low and we know that it's going to go skip, skip and just jam on the brakes right next to the hole. Well, what's the difference between that shot and the floater, that high floater that I call it, that doesn't seem to have much direction to it. It wobbles around in the air, hits the green, and just keeps going. Well, I spoke to this major champion, and I said, we were talking about that floater, that particular shot, and I said, so what causes that? And he had a very interesting answer in that he said, no, it's attack angle. If you change your attack angle, you can hit that floater. And he wasn't the type of player who was going to be overly receptive to my information. And so I just nodded my head and stayed very quiet. But, you know, I know without a shadow of a doubt, it is not that. It is not attack angle. It is purely how the ball, inter the face really interacts with the golf ball and the level of friction that occurs at impact. And if you get that nice clean strike and that ball can stick to the face, you're going to get much lower launch with significantly higher spin. That's not where I thought that story was going to go. <laughs> but I think it also proves an important point that like, you know, I think giving the right information to, you know, a lot of golfers helps them in their quest to become better. But as we've said before on this podcast, like there's been plenty of golfers who've played really well with technically the wrong information. But sure. I know, I know with wedge play, this is an area I've massively struggled with. And I had the wrong information for a long time and I wasn't playing very well either. So <laughs> it was a bad combination. So a few things that you mentioned in there kind of stuck out to me. Let's talk about the, and I've said this before, probably 10, 15, 20 years ago, you have to hit down on the ball to make it go up, which is, you know, alludes to angle of attack, having this super downward trajectory on the ball yes. to make it go up. 
What do you think about that now? How would you clarify that to someone uh, on hitting down on the ball? And what do you think is an optimal range to be in for, for good wedge play? John, firstly, I would say that it's the loft on the face that makes the ball go up. It's the loft on the face that makes the ball go up. And we need to, at some point, get the club down enough in order for the loft to be exposed to the golf ball. But it is not the act of hitting down that makes it go up. If that were true, then we would want to hit down on our driver, surely, because I hit up on my driver in order to make it go further. And if I hit up, that should make it go down. If hitting down makes it go up. And that's not true, thankfully. So it's the loft on the face that makes the ball go up. We need to get the ball on the face, on the loft, in order for it to go up. Well, what do you think of the disadvantages of hitting down then? So that phrase, obviously, most modern instructors don't like it much anymore. What, what are your reasons for disliking that phrase? Adam, well, because it's not true. It's not true. If I exert a downward force on an object, nothing of that force is going to cause the ball to go up. So it's false. Let's keep it as accurate as we can within reason. I think, you know, one thing that comes to mind is compress the golf ball, compression in golf. Well, we don't really compress the golf ball. We deform the golf ball. But I'm not going to say to my students, hey, come on, I want you to work on deforming the golf ball. (laughs) I don't really care about that. It's not going to change how the player does it. But hitting down in order to make it go up is something that can change. That notion can change how people go about their business. If they're hitting the ball really low, they might start hitting down more and they're catching it on the leading edge You can top a ball hitting down too much or hitting up too much. It can stay on the ground both ways. And so that can change how people respond to it. And I think it's important as coaches that we get that right and we try to set the record straight, so to speak, when it comes to that. I remember as a junior golfer, I used to try and like slam my wedge into the ground thinking I'd have to like, again, that hit down on it to make it go up and spin. And and, and I would... Like you said, what I'd really be doing was exposing the leaning edge of the club and not using the bounce. We'll probably get into that later, but I was, you know, my low point control is bad. I was, I was chunking a lot of balls is what I'm trying to say. So you've told me this probably years ago that you like to think as a lot of wedge play is like gently landing a plane. And as it pertains to angle of attack and the trajectory of the wedge as it interacts with the turf. So is it your preference now that I know we can't speak for all golfers that you'd rather have golfers with a more shallow angle of attack with their wedges rather than like, you know, landing into JFK airport, you're coming on this crazy descent. Is that your preference now for most of your students? John, I would say five years ago, that was my preference. I would say now I would amend that slightly and go shallow-ish. Okay. I would prefer a shallow. I, I would say I have shifted ever so slightly to a little bit more down. I do see a lot of golfers who are overly shallow, too shallow coming into the golf ball. They're almost landing the plane before the runway and it skips off the ground into the golf ball. A lot of golfers also, if we're going to put it in numbers and there's two measuring machines out there, we've got TrackMan and we've got GC Quad. I would say it depends which one you're using, but I would say on TrackMan, I would prefer something in the 4 to 12 
downrange, those can certainly work. But just understand it's a measure of physics, really, because the steeper the angle of approach, the narrower the window of opportunity for that strike. The margin of error gets so much skinnier when I hit down on the ball a lot. Whereas if I've got the sole of my club, that plane is on the runway. If I've got the sole of the club running along the ground, it's not going into the ground, it's not coming off the ground. I can strike the ball pretty well every time that way. It just becomes quite difficult to manage if you've got that really, really shallow angle of approach. You've got to be perfect. It's like trying to hit a full swing seven iron with zero angle of attack. It can be done. Oh, I do it all the time. <laughs> yes, it can be done, but it's hard to hit yeah, the repeat no, you, button on that. Exactly. I'm glad you said margin of error because as we know, like golfers can live in the extremes. Would you agree that their skill level has to be that much higher to be able to repeat in the extremes Agreed. versus if we're talking about the more common recreational golfer, I often use the word functional as an aspiration for any technique or skill. Yeah. So avoiding getting too steep or too negative on that angle of attack. I like what you said is that helps reduce the margin of error. You don't have to be as precise because I think that's probably the hardest thing for me is having my wedges, how they interact with the turf, which is such an important skill to have. <laughs> it's what it's all about, John. It's what it's all about, how the sole of the club interacts with the turf. If you can get the sole to interact an appropriate amount at the appropriate time, you'll never hit a bad wedge shot again, mm. if you think about it that way. And I like what you said about function there. A long time ago, I created this image in my mind where I thought of a range of function, a range within which things can function. And I pictured a pipeline, a fairly generous pipeline. And your technique can be anywhere within the pipeline and it's functional. It doesn't have to be right down the center of the pipeline. It can be running along the edge and it'll be okay. I posted something on Insta a couple of weeks ago. I showed, I was trying to contrast the chipping technique of Jordan Spieth versus uh, yeah. that of Rocco Mediate. And they're both amazing, but they are as far apart within that pipeline, within that range of function as you can get, but they're both in the pipeline. Yeah, I'm much more Jordan Spieth-esque. I'm very, I was influenced by pelts and, you know, the forward shaft leaning. I'm okay, I'm a good wedge player. So, you know, when all the modern stuff came out about using the bounce a little bit more and having being shallow, you know, I tinkered around with it. And it, like you said, there's, if you're already good with something, then you might not want to change it that much necessarily. But, you know, I learned some things from experimenting with the other end of the spectrum, and it certainly helped me with certain shots that I didn't have at the time. So I think there's good advantages to being on both sides of the spectrum. But, you know, in terms of the margin for error, just going back a little bit, you know, I certainly see it as if you're that type of person who's kind of crash landing, your swing is less sensitive to the up and down errors or movements that you have. But you better be good with low point position because you hit an inch behind it and your crash landing is going to be a disaster. Whereas you take the other end of the spectrum like John, where he's coming in shallow, 
his swing's less sensitive to maybe low point errors, you know, he could hit a little bit behind it. And because it's coming in so shallow, it's still going to function quite well. But his arc depth has got to be spot on. If you're coming in with a zero angle of attack and you drop just half an inch or quarter of an inch even, you could hit up to six inches behind it. Luckily, John is very skilled in his depth control. So I suppose there's just different demands on either end of the spectrum. And that's where most pros end up going to that nice middle ground of maybe two to six, two to eight, something like that degrees angle of attack with longer irons. So it's kind of a self-organization towards that middle ground of function. Another, going back to your original statement about hitting that nice, low trajectory spinning wedge shot. So unpacking that, I'm thinking of a lot of things that, like you said, there's a lot of golfers who add a lot of loft to their wedges and don't spin it as much, which is the exact opposite of what you said. So do you think in order for someone, and I guess we're referring to more pitch shots here. Yes. Let's talk about shaft lean because I don't think a lot of golfers understand that, like where their hands are, I guess, you know, at the impact position relative to the golf ball. Are they ahead of the ball? Are they at the ball or are they behind the ball, which is probably the situation you're most looking to avoid. Let's talk about shaft lean and loft and all that stuff. Let's get into that because that I think is super important to understanding how to manipulate the golf ball and make it work for you. Good point, John. Here we go. Shaft lean. I think everybody needs a degree of shaft lean. It gives us cleaner access to the back of the golf ball. It just makes the striking of the golf ball that much easier for us. We don't want too much. We don't want truly vertical. I think that's going to be more of a challenge for people to get Why the not? handle, the head right under the handle coming into the golf ball. That's going to make life a little bit more difficult. I must say when I'm seeing the best players in the world hit pitch shots, I'm yet to ever see anyone not have a measure of shaft lean. In the testing, and John, you very kindly in the intro said you've done a lot of research, and I would counter that by saying I'm not smart enough to call it research, and so I just call it testing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's okay. I know those guys at Ping, those guys have got the doctor in front of their name, and they do the research. I'm just doing testing. I'm coming up with ideas and testing a lot of different things, and what I found is when we're hitting pitch shots, there's two ways we can stop the golf ball. One is with land angle. If the ball's just dropping straight out of a plane, it's landing straight down, it's gonna stop very quickly. Or high rates of spin. And when it comes to pitching, in all my testing, I see that it's better to stop the golf ball, if possible, with spin. Because we can control the golf ball that much better. In order to have a very steep land angle, we've got to have a very steep launch angle. And all of a sudden, our ability to control the golf ball is compromised when we start to launch the ball very high. The higher we launch it, the less we spin it. I know it doesn't seem like that for most golfers, but trust me, that is the case. High launch equals low spin. Lower launch on a well-struck shot with the appropriate club is going to typically equal higher spin. I like to look for a dynamic loft. What is dynamic loft? It's the loft of the club face at impact. 
it doesn't mean I'm using a 60 degree or a 52 degree or a pitching wedge. It just means I'm taking the utensil in my hand and creating 45 degrees of dynamic loft at impact. And I found that's a good number to work around. If you can be in that ballpark for your pitch shots, I encourage all my students to play their pitch shots from the center of their stance, a relatively narrow stance. Play the ball out the center of your stance and rely on spin. Even if you've got those firmish, fast greens and you've got a front pin, a lot of golfers will go, ooh, I need to hit this high. Well, you're throwing out your ability to control the golf ball. Not all of it, but a good portion of it in an effort to try to get it to stop. You will be better served going with the low launch, high spinner, played out the middle of the stance where you're delivering right around 45 degrees of loft. For me, that's a 58. I actually switched from, I used to have 60-54 pitching wedge. Now, I switched because I saw that I needed to get closer to 45 and I could do so quite easily with a 58 degree. So I've got 58, 54, 50 because I'm an old guy. I need help <laughs> in the wedges and then a pitching wedge. But that 45, I've taught golfers who need to use the pitching wedge to deliver 45. I've taught golfers who need to use the 60 in order to deliver 45 at impact. And that's just going towards showing that there's almost always a measure of shaft lean. We do have certainly, you know, the shaft bows away from the target. There's some shaft lead, it's called there. Ultimately, it all comes down to, if we were to be more accurate, we would say hosel lean. We don't need to get into that. Just the hands need to be some amount forward, but not too, too much. What do you think are the disadvantages of being on either ends of the spectrum, too much shaft lean versus too little or even leaning backwards? What would commonly be the issues that you see? with golfers? I would say it's what people would think it would lead to, Adam. Too much shaft lean is typically going to be hitting down too much and a really skinny window coming into the golf ball. On the opposite end of the spectrum, shaft very vertical. Uh, we can skip the sole, the bounce of the club off the ground into the golf ball and get some kind of drop kicky type shots, overly clean strikes. I mean, speaking anecdotally as someone who was truly clueless from like 40 to 80 yards years ago i was probably before i changed my swing a bit delivering way too much loft trying to like do the opposite of what you said which was stopping the ball with loft and it was i didn't have enough distance control to make that work so i would either like you know, land it well short of the green, or I just couldn't land the ball in that window. Whereas now the numbers you're saying, I've been measured on the GC quad. I deliver a 60 degree lob wedge at about 48 degrees. Usually when Close I'm hitting it, yeah, when I'm hitting a pitch shot, I think my launch angle is like 28, 29 degrees, like perfect 6,000 spin, something like that. So I've learned to do exactly what you said, which is to de-loft and that has controlled trajectory distance control, because when I think of wedge play now, I think spin is your friend, spin is control. We don't like spin on driver because we want that high knuckleball with the driver, but high around launch, the greens. low spin on drivers, exactly. low launch, high spin on wedges. Yeah. And, and when I think about golfers that I watch on the course who, who struggle with wedges, it's, you know, Adam said the opposite side of the spectrum. I see hands that are probably behind the ball, like just adding tons of loft to the club and the stamped loft on that club 
is just a starting point, as you know. Like it might say 58 degrees on it, but someone might be delivering 66 degrees of loft yeah. or even more if, if their hands are so far back. So I don't know if we have a specific anecdote or fix to people saying like, oh, how are you going to de-loft? But just understanding that where your hands are at impact and understanding that, you know, I certainly agree with you. Some amount of shaft lean with wedge play is almost a necessity because I think of those, like, remember when everyone started posting those videos a few years ago, everyone sliding their right hand underneath and doing that. Like I'm showing Andrew this on video now, no one will be able to see it, but it was almost like that scoopy motion wedge shot. Yeah. And I looked at that and I'm like, I would skull it. I can't do that. Yeah. It just, yeah, again, it works for a lot of players. Like you posted that video of Rocco versus Jordan. Yeah. I'm more Jordan with the shaft lean, not nearly as good. But I look at someone like Rocco who was doing that, not scooping motion, but their hands were a little Yeah, it's it's technically not scooping, but there's just such precision with what their hands are doing that I'm just not good enough to do that. I almost rely on the shaft lean more, which gives me problems in other areas, I think, as I get closer to the hole. It's a scoopy hand action, but, you know, Rocco's still contacting the ground in a functional place, which is okay. When you get those amateurs, they're using that scoopy action and hitting six inches behind it. That's not functional. (laughs) But lots of it stems from intent as well. And I know Andrew's big on this, you know, first looking into what is the player trying to do? And when you get that beginner, they're often trying to, well, I've, I've got to get under it, right? I've got to scoop it up in the air. So that's one of the first things you have to kind of address with a player. And when you tell them, well, no, the best players are, are more driving that ball forward on this lower trajectory, that can often change a lot of the technique without you even have to go too much in detail into it. And guys, you know, something, sorry to jump in, John. Go ahead. Something that I think is important to put on the table is, If we took the top 20 golfers from 20 years ago and put them against the top 20 golfers of today, it would be a no contest. Even if we gave them all the same equipment, why? Knowledge, data, understanding. We have the advantage of knowledge and data and understanding. We know statistics. As a result, we know where to aim. We understand ball flight. As a result, we know to hit up on the golf ball. We understand our bias, our tendencies via statistics. There is so much that we have available to us. And I think it's important. A lot of golfers that I teach, I teach the regular everyday golfer. A lot of them are older and they're still living in the 1990s, 1980s, like, no, I'm going to go and dig it out the dirt. We have so much available to us. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. We have a far deeper understanding as to how it actually works. Let's use that stuff. Let's tap into that stuff to give us an opportunity to play better golf. And certainly if you're dealing with the golfer who's struggling, you're going to want to use that knowledge. Whereas if you had a player come to you, maybe a more skilled player, maybe doing something that you necessarily didn't agree with technique wise, would you not adjust them as much? Would you kind of leave that alone and being like, Hey, this player believes in this technique. It might not be what I prefer. So is that where you stand with like the more skilled player who's kind of got some ingrained thought or do you try and interject there? This is a bit of a philosophical question. I like I'm interested to hear. The question I've always, I have committed to asking myself is, does this work in repeat mode? It may not be my preference. And that's a mistake I've made for many, many years. And I'm trying to make 
it less frequently. I still make it. But that's a mistake. I've got my preference as a coach. I like how certain things look. But is it working? On repeat mode, under the gun. If it meets up and it can check those boxes, I've got to go, okay, let's tread very lightly here and let's leave that alone. It's working. I need to deepen my understanding of how this works. And that's why I think it's so important for coaches to understand the swings of Jim Furyk and Calvin Pete and Eamon Darcy and all those unusual swings that really were great, great golfers. Why? How? I may lose my train of thought within this because there's a lot to it, but it is a really interesting question. It gets asked all the time on the forums that we frequent, which is, you know, if you had Jim Furyk in front of you, would you have changed him? And obviously the answer every pro gets is, well, no, of course I wouldn't change him because, you know, he's functional. Yeah, well, I mean, there are a lot of players who, or a lot of coaches who would if they're really honest because of our preference. But even when it's working, there are going to be days where it doesn't. And then that impulse from us as humans to kind of make it more symmetrical and say, oh, well, it's not working at the moment. But then there's the other side of the spectrum as well. What if you get a Jim Furyk whose motion is very similar to Jim Furyk, but it's not working? It's too easy to then say, oh, well, now is a perfect time to change it then. Whereas I've always asked, I'm not saying changing it is wrong in a non-functional Jim Furyk. I'm just always asking, well, what is it? What's the difference then between that non-functional Jim Furyk and the functional Jim Furyk? Maybe instead of changing Jim Furyk's model, even in the non-functional version, we find out what the difference is and we change that instead. I know that's a real tough... I know. I know. It's a lot. <laughs> My guess is that there's some type of skill inside of him that you necessarily cannot Bingo. see. Like I'm thinking of a golfer I play with. He's a scratch golfer. So by virtue of that, he's you know, top 1% of recreational players. He's the best chipper I know. But what does he do? He's got the golf ball past his trail foot, like literally like as far back as his stance as he could go, like well beyond anyone I've ever seen. And he hits this low skimming, you know, he uses the same wedge, de-lofts it and scrapes it. And the guy like chips in all the time, like always close to the hole. Like if I gave that technique to a 20 handicap, they'd be jabbing the club into the ground or, or sculling it half the time. So Because the skill is different. Exactly. Right? I would say his low point control is impeccable. His ability to access the proper point on the club face, you know, lower, certainly not too high on the face. But what Andrew said rings true is that there's repeatability there. And most importantly, as someone who has unorthodox technique like me, like I deliver my wedges very on the inside, basically danger territory, but I believe in my technique. I'm comfortable with it. So if you told me like, Hey, John, we want to stop you. So into out with your wedges and I want you, you know, neutralizing that path where you're delivering it, you know, more neutral. I don't know if I could trust that under the gun in a tournament. It might take several years to readjust that. So perhaps we've gotten off the beaten path here, but I think with wedges, this is the part of the game where people often say there's artistry here and there are a lot of options. You can play the high lofted flop. You can play the low running skip chip. My preference is for people to get simple and repeatable and a technique they can count on to get the ball on the putting surface and then eliminate those for chunks. Sure. Skulls. So that's always where my mind goes in these types of discussions is like, yes, it's personal, but 
what can someone rely on on the golf course? Mm. A simple technical thought, one club selection. We've talked about this before, Adam, where we prefer simple versus someone saying, well, I step up to the green or my pitch shot and I've got four options to choose from. For me, that gets a little like, okay, that might be too much to choose from. I prefer simplicity. We've gotten off the path here a little bit philosophically, but oh, no, I wanted to uh, continue down that road. Well, it I does, got other. We got. I Adam would love. I've got my list of questions here. I want to talk about bounce, ball position, <laughs> spin, friction, the clock system. So we don't have all of Andrew's time, but yeah, that. Let you know what? Let's take a quick break there. Got a quick message, and we'll come back in a second. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. We're back. All right, Adam, you're dying to ask a question. Well, it, it relates to a big part of Andrew's philosophy on and mine as well on skill versus technique. This is 50% of you know, your show, so go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, in terms of when we have that player who doesn't have a great looking technique, the answer is always, in most cases, well, let's change the technique then. And in many cases, that's right, or it's certainly a route to improvement. But I'm sure what Andrew has asked, I know he's asked himself this, and this is where I came up with my ideas about skill development as well, is, well, why not improve the skill of that player? If that is the difference 
between a non-functional Jim Furyk and a functional Jim Furyk is the skill. Why not use both of those, improve the technique and the skill, or even just the skill on its own? I know Andrew's done a lot in terms of skill development. So how do you see skill development? If you were to kind of explain it to the audience, what's your view of skill development versus technique? Adam, skill to me is something everybody can learn. It is not something you're born with. Um, it is not the manner in which you do something, which I would call technique. Mm -hmm. um, it is the unseen. And that's the big challenge for coaches is we can't record it and show it to somebody. Um, here's a player, and I often use the example with my students. As I explain what skill is, I use the example of darts. I train, I want to become a great darts player, and I go over to Wales and I hang out in a pub where there's this great darts guy and he's just crushed five pints, okay? And I've got my darts clothes and my darts shoes and I've been working out and training and practicing. I'm envisioning the there. golfer in Nike gear rolling up to the course. <laughs> <laughs> and I get up there and I throw my darts and one of them finds the target and my opponent gets up there, doesn't look as sharp and as technically on point as I look and goes one, two, three, all three in the target. Why? Is it that player's technique that's getting it done? Definitely not. Were they born as a darts player? I don't believe so. It's skill that they've developed over time. They've refined that very precise motor process that allows them to control the face, that allows them to control the attack angle to the point that they can hit that shot on repeat with something that doesn't necessarily look great. And it can be learned and it can be improved. And I'm out with that one. <laughs> and I know Andrew agrees with that as well. Certainly I do too. So what do you think about skill with wedge play? Like when you have a pupil who comes to you and who's struggling, obviously, because they're seeking help from you and you say, okay, let's obviously you're going to try and fix turf interaction, shaft lean, you know, how the ball's hitting the face, all of these things, which yes, skill can accomplish all of those. How are you helping that player increase their skill? Is it, you know, you telling them what to practice? Like, is it games? Like, you know, give me some top level thoughts to everyone listening who wants to become a better wedge player. How can they increase their skill? Great little drill, John. Simple. Everyone can do this. I call it the nine ball drill. You're going to get nine golf balls. I'm a fan of, in my chipping teaching, I work with three golf clubs and three trajectories. What I encourage people to do when they're playing, okay, they walk up to the shot and they go, whoa, I've got three different clubs I can use that go with three different trajectories, okay? And so I ask them, which one doesn't work here, the high, the mid, or the low? And they throw one out, and then they've just got to pick between the low and the mid, okay? So it's an easy choice. They've got to pick between one option, and they go from there. Well, in the nine ball drill, I want you to have three targets and you're going to take your mid club. For me, I've got a 58, 54, 50. High shot, mid shot, low shot, okay? Those are the three clubs I use. I tried for a long, long time to get all my students, ranging from really good golfers to 25 handicappers to use one club. They struggled, they struggled, because it's hard to take your 58 and hit a low one 
and it's hard to take your pitching wedge and hit the high soft one over the bunker. And so I said, let's expand and let's go to three clubs. And so in this nine ball drill, you're going to take your high club and you're going to go a high shot to each of the three targets. Leave the balls there. Change clubs, you're going to go to your low club. You're going to go low, low, low. You're going to go mid, mid, mid. So you've hit nine shots. Well, here's the challenge and here's the skill development portion of this is for a number of those shots, you're hitting the wrong club. But you've still got to make it work. You've still got to adapt. And to me, the more skilled the player is, the greater their ability to adapt to the unique requirements of each and every shot. And that's where skill comes in. Yeah. I mean, I've literally have done that in my backyard where I'll pick a target and try and hit, you know, low, medium, high trajectory to it. And what I'm really doing, I think when we talked about shaft lean and what your hands are doing is I'm learning how to manipulate my hands and where they are to alter the trajectory of the golf ball. And I don't necessarily bring all those shots out on the course, but Adam and I have, you know, Adam wrote a fantastic book called the practice manual about a lot of these things. And I've kind of stumbled across some of them myself in my own experimentation, but especially with wedge play, because you don't have necessarily the same stock shot. Like you're not hitting a seven iron or a five. iron. Correct. I think learning how to, particularly learn how to manipulate your hands or even ball position. You can experiment if I place the ball back or middle or forward in my stance, how does that alter the trajectory? I've done so much of that as a kid or even as an adult now, where I just try and mess around and then I take the results. And I think that makes my stock shots better because I don't really like to go on the course. As you said, I think what your method can possibly work for a golfer who struggles with some issues around the green. I like to use one club and manipulate a little bit more. That's the great thing about wedge play. You can do what's comfortable for you. I found that that can work, John. It could, yeah. Because there's lots of different ways. Well, I'm not, I want to be very clear. I'm not a great, I'd say outside of 50 yards, I'm a good wedge player. Inside 50, I'd say that's probably the weakest part of my game. I get the ball in the green. I don't make any big mistakes, but I could certainly use some help in the proximity department. But that was the part of the game that came hardest for me. And doing that type of experimental variability. I know Adam, I'm using probably the wrong names here because you're the expert on this stuff, but I think that's quite important for someone who does want to become a better wedge player. It's the unseen skill that does play a large role. Very, very. Uh, We had Brett Rumford and for anyone listening who doesn't know, Brett Rumford is a former European tour player. Brett is known for Australian golfer who's known for incredible ability with the wedge. If you haven't seen him, go on Instagram and, and just look him up and check out some of the shots this guy can hit. He is really absolutely world-class at hitting wedge shots. And we had Brett Rumford on coach camp last year. And he said, as a kid, he would go out there and he loved chipping. And he would stand there pretty much from sun up to sundown around the chipping green, hitting shots. What was he doing? Was he working on technique? No, he didn't know anything about technique. He was working on making the ball match the picture in his head match his intent, match his objective. And I'm sure he was like, let me see if I can get it close to the hole this way. Let me see if I can get it close to the hole that way. And that's how we as amazing human being athletes, that's how we improve our ability to adapt, to adjust, to compensate. Absolutely. Manipulate is the um, word you used. 
I want to try and get to some of the questions that people asked because I think they're important. Let's talk about bounce and soul. I think those words kind of get used interchangeably. I know Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily the same thing, but, and not necessarily from a club fitting perspective. I know you know a lot about that, but in terms of turf interaction or even in the bunker, what's like, you know, when, when golfers come to you learning how to be better wedge players, what do you try and educate them on this, the design of the club and how to use it? Because that was a very common question we got. Part of what I share with golfers is the following. If you've got wedge A, let's say it's a 56 degree wedge and it's got eight degrees of bounce. If you open the face, you increase the bounce. If you close the face, you decrease the bounce. If you lean the handle, the shaft forward, you decrease the bounce. If you lean the handle, the shaft back, you increase the bounce. And so let's understand that. What does increasing the bounce mean? It means I'm taking the leading edge of the club and I'm elevating it off the ground. As I reduce bounce, I'm getting the leading edge closer to the ground. As I increase it, I'm getting it away from the ground. On certain shots, I want to ensure that I've got the leading edge up out of the grain, for example, if you're hitting a shot into the grain. I'm a big fan of when we've got to go up, when we've got to hit that higher shot in fairly close proximity to the green and we're into the grain, as oftentimes we are because please remember this, grain grows downhill. It does not grow to the setting sun or to the San Andreas fault or to water. It grows downhill. And so when we're chipping off of an upslope, we're into the grain, take your second most lofted club, open up the face, get the loft to that of your 58 or your most lofted club. You've increased the bounce, you've elevated the leading edge, and now you've got that rudder that can glide through those blades of grass coming into the, that would typically catch the leading edge. And so I'm not a a huge advocate for bounce. I know a lot of people talk about it. I don't think it is an absolute game changer. Would you say it's a little bit of a safety net? I think so. It's a little bit, but I've seen golfers who don't have very good technique, who run the club into the ground, do worse with more bounce and I've seen them do better with perhaps what we might regard as less bounce for most golfers. And I know some of the people asked the question pertaining to grind and bounce angles and that uh, I think for most golfers, if you can go, you're going out to buy some wedges. The best scenario would be take three different soles, take the same club in three different soles and go and hang out around the chipping green hit bunker shots, hit high ones, hit low ones, hit pitch shots, hit into the grain, hit down grain, uphills, downhills, and go and just note which club is typically giving you the better strike. That's the wedge to go with. Regardless of what you think, that's the wedge to go with. If you cannot do that, if you don't have the ability to do that, I'm going to say don't ever get anything much less than eight and don't ever get anything much more than 12. Stay in the middle. Keep it in the middle. If you do that, you're going to be fine. There was a big push over the last sort of five years or so showing people, you know, using the bounce and hitting intentionally kind of four, five, six inches behind it and showing, look, you can still hit functional shots if you do this. And I was not really too much a fan of that. Like you said, I think bounce is important, but it's overstated perhaps. 
And, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell the vast majority of amateurs to hit even farther behind it and use the bounce. Most of them are applying enough bounce and hitting enough behind it. Uh, that's probably not the best advice for them. But then you get the other end of the spectrum. Guys have been maybe influenced by pelts and, you know, really forward shaft leaning and trying to hit really ball and then take a divot on a short wedge shot. They might be good candidates for using the bounce to neutralize that tendency, but it sounds like you're similar in thought process there. And Adam, you used a great word, neutralize. I think as a coach, most often our job is to neutralize what the player is doing. And John, when you were talking about your typical wedge technique that you're comfortable with, you tend to approach the ball from the inside. I would say, look, let's not do away with that, but instead of six degrees from the inside let's see if we can get it to four that's all and we talk about on this show andrew is me neutralizing my into out path neutralize, <laughs> neutralize, neutralize. by the way i actually think it might be i haven't been tracked in so long i actually think i have because my golf ball does not really curve that much anymore it's taken me five years but i've got to get on the on a track man or gc quad and see what it's at because i just i'm a guy who works ball flight backwards yeah i have a launch monitor but it doesn't pick up club head data so i'm just trying to take off that right to left curvature on the golf ball and i've done a much better job of it the last few years but it does work against me and my wedge play my tendencies the de-lofting coming from the inside i'm one of those golfers you, you talked about where my sand wedge is i have a ping glide wide sole, 14 degrees of bounce. Mm -hmm. I need it because I'm on that extreme. I need a club with some built-in relief because again, I'm exposing that leading edge more than most. So again, does it save me everywhere? No, I don't like what you said. It's not, I can still chunk it um, yeah. and the bounce isn't going to do a thing for me, but I know it's there. And as you said, you can kind of open that face a little bit, especially on those into the grain shots to provide a little bit of relief there, but your low point control, how you're interacting with the turf still has to be paramount. Is that, is that your belief on those shots? Like you just can't, yeah. like Adam said, you can't strike it six inches behind the ball and hope good things are going to happen. Yes. Yes. I think an upward hand path as well helps. Like I use a lot of forward shaffling, but because my hand path is working up, that club still glides along. I never dig in, even though I'm, I probably use negative bounce sometimes, but I don't dig in because the hand path is optimal well i wouldn't say optimal but good i think you're referring to the concept that guys like andrew you know when i probably first started following you on twitter showing me videos of a golfer's hands traveling up through the impact zone and their club was still going down and i was like whoa wait a second because <laughs> that goes against everything to hit down on it most people want to jam their hands into the ground and when you look at great players in slow motion in 3d their hands are kind of coming up as the club can still go on a downward trajectory. Like, does that come into play on in wedge play a lot? That concept big for you? Time. Big yeah. time, John. That is, talk about, that is talk the name that. of the game. All right, um, talk about that a little bit. There's never been a good wedge player whose butt end of the club, top end of the club, is not traveling upward or inward. The club head might be traveling inward. The club head might be traveling outward. It might be traveling straight. It's, I'm going to say this, most, most often traveling down. But think of a three-dimensional object. If you just take a drinking straw, you can push one end down and the other end goes up. It can move in multiple directions and it does move in multiple directions at the same time. And I know for a lot of people that they struggle with that. Well, if the handle's going up, then surely the head's going up. No, this object can move in 
and it does move in multiple different directions at the same time. And so via that clearing of the lead side, that opening up of the chest, that's how we start to get the handle. It's not something people need to think about, certainly too hard. I think we need to understand it. But that, as Adam indicated, even if you've got a fair bit of shaft lean, you can still have the club head traveling up with forward shaft lean. Not that you want that with wedges, but you can have it traveling fairly shallow along the ground when it comes to hitting wedges, as long as the handle's traveling upward. The thing that helped me stop, and I was the Y word happened a bit with my wedges for years, you know, over a decade ago. The thought of my chest continuing to move through the impact zone. And as you said, get open, like some people think about their belt buckle, their chest, whatever it is, you are moving up. I'm showing this on video again, but the chest is rotating open. And I can think about that as your chest is going open, your hands are coming up at the same time. So when you look at like, I'm thinking of videos of someone like Luke Donald, who is arguably the best chipper pitcher, whatever you want to call it in the world, you're seeing like that upward opening movement. Like that's all connected to this handle phenomenon. That's it. That's it. Yeah. That lead side, that lead shoulder is as it's clearing, it's going up. And if I know you can't extend your arm. And so if your shoulder goes up, you know, what's going to happen to your hand it's also going to go up. And that's what causes the handle of the club to rise on the way through and helps to neutralize and get the sole of that club to glide more along the ground versus to crash into the ground and dig. So do you think it, it, go ahead, Adam. I was going to say, when you look at some great, great guys like Chevy Ballesteros, they even have a little bit of arm fold, you know, very soft hands in the end position. Whereas, you know, my era was taught, right, you've got to have rigid straight arms and hold this triangle in the follow through. And that can work as well if you've got a good body pivot. You know, guys like Seve, it's okay to fold the arm a little bit and get that nice flat spot at the bottom that Chris Como and Sasha McKenzie talk about. That's where I first learned about that concept. And just the idea of a flat spot that I know you've talked about as well, Andrew, it's, you know, once you start visualizing that, it so much more makes sense. And you look at all these old techniques that weren't influenced by modern instruction and you see, well, wow, they're very, very different, very more natural looking. And it's interesting stuff. When you think of golfers who are struggling with their wedges, do you think a lot of it is from the opposite of that occurring where their body stalls out at impact and then kind of the hands take over? And that's, I mean, I know I still probably struggle with that from time to time. It's like the engine turns off, which I guess you could say is perhaps the rotation of your body. And then the arms have nowhere to go and they just kind of start doing some very non-functional things. Typically, you know, when I first came out with the wedge project, it was uh, 2009, I think. And that was the big discovery for me in the wedge project. I spoke a lot about friction, but the big discovery for me was understanding that the butt end of the club needs to be elevating as the club head runs into the golf ball. And there's a number of little uh, draggy type exercises you can do where you take an alignment rod and you put the tip of it on the ground about two feet behind you and you just rotate your body through. Even if you just film that, you'll start to see how your hands are actually elevating through impact whilst the tip of the alignment rod is clearly staying on the ground. It's not coming off the ground. So you can get that feel, but that is, I believe that's an integral element of 
getting it done. Whether you do it by, as Adam said, Sevi, you know, that soft leading arm, Ernie even had some of that, that soft lead arm, or you clear your chest out to get your shoulder up, to get your hand up. Interesting. All right. I'm looking at some more questions here. Here's a good one because Adam has been mentioning Dave Peltz a few times. Um, By the way, I liked Dave Peltz's philosophy. I loved the book. I think it was just an extreme end of the scale, right? Forward Shaftley and hitting down on it. But it's certainly, I don't want to denigrate Dave Peltz. I learned a lot from that book. You see that? The Wedge Bible, that's what it's called, right? That saved me in terms of, I think the question I'm getting to is the clock system for, you know, pitch shots. I still use it. I don't think it's necessary for everyone, but the thought process for me is, is okay. I use my lob wedge on all my shots from, you know, 40 to 90 yards, call that an intermediate wedge shot for me. I have my different clock feels for essentially how far my hands are going back. And that helps me deliver the proper amount of swing speed and force to the ball to hopefully Mm. hit it 55 yards, 65 yards. That's helped me tremendously. But one question we got is, is like, you know, do you like the clock system or what are your thoughts on that for those intermediate type pitch shots? How do you control your distance? John, my answer would be as follows. It's important for every player to have their own template. And that template could be the clock system. It could be hip to hip, shoulder to shoulder, ear to ear, a variety of different ways for us to achieve that. Many, many years ago, I was not in favor of going out and practicing a set distance, getting a feel for a set distance. I said, the human brain is amazing. We can figure that out. Well, the human brain is amazing. I just think we can make that job that much easier by practicing some core distances. What I've come up with, my template, has nothing to do with the clock. It has nothing to do with speed or the length of the swing. I always want the ball played out the center of the stance. The stance width doesn't change. That's going to remain constant. The way I've found I can have the most success with the greatest variety of players is as follows. I create what I call pitching zones. And so I've got 58, 54, 50. So for example, I know I can hit my 58, 85 yards. I cut that club off at 75% approximately. I want to find a nice round number. And so I decided I'm not going to hit my 58 beyond 60. So all my pitch shots under 60, I'm going to play with my 58 degree. I deliver 45, I get good spin, that's how I can control my golf ball. From 60 to 90, I use my 54. I can, on a full swing, hit my 54 100 yards. I go with 90% of my second most lofted club. 75% of my most lofted club, full swing. 90% of my second most lofted club. So from 60 to 90, I'm a 54 man. From 90 to 110, 110 is a full swing with my 50 degree. I'm allowed to hit my 50 degree full, my third most lofted club. It's going to carry me from 90 to 110. So now the next question might be, well, Andrew, you know, how do you hit a shot 40? How do you hit a shot 68? What I do once we've come up with what your pitching zones are, 
And it's amazing how many people I teach who go, well, you know, that swing stuff you told me didn't really help, but that pitching zone stuff, <laughs> that's amazing. You're a junk um, swing instructor, but where you get <laughs> Apparently, wedges. apparently. This is what I get really good reports on. And it's establish the zones and then go, okay, I'm going to pick because it comes down to time, doesn't it? For a lot of golfers, you know, how many golfers have an opportunity to practice? Really? have an opportunity to practice. And then you've got to go, okay, how many of those golfers who have an opportunity to practice are going to go and spend two hours on their pitching game? That's yep. now nah, I'm going to try to hit, you know, it's like we're talking in some rarefied space here, but should you have the time now for somebody like myself, I'm going to go 50 yards with my 58 because that's going to easily get me up to 60. If I know 50, I can swing a little harder and get it to 60 or a little softer and get it to 40. I'm going to pick something right in the middle of my 54 degree club, which is between 60 and 90. That's an easy one, 75. That covers that zone. And then between 90 and 110 is 100 yards. And so pick one core distance with each of those three clubs and go to it. Once you know the feel of that core distance, and you can think of it any way you want, getting that core distance and you go, well, that feels like shoulder to shoulder, or that feels like nine o'clock to nine o'clock. Go with whatever template you've got. Establish your pitching zones, pick out a core distance in each zone, and go and learn that. Once you got that, you're off to the races. Yeah, I think having, for me, it's like reference points. And these are the shots on the course where I think a lot of golfers end up losing strokes because they will not get them on the green due to those uh uh-oh shots where they kind of... And then a lot of golfers are faced with these distances on the course, especially, you know, if they're not hitting a par four and two, if they have par fives, you know, these are the pitch shots. My goal for any golfer is, and we had an episode with Lou Stagner to manage people's expectations on proximity on the green. I'm just looking for people to step up to the ball and feel reasonably confident that they're going to get the ball on the putting surface most of the time. I think if you can do that and establish some type of simple system, which I think the one you gave is very simple, establishing those reference points, that's like 75, 80% of the battle for a lot of golfers. It's just not shooting yourself in the foot on those shots. I'm sure when you had Lou and Scott and you came to the conclusion, better golf is not more birdies. It's fewer doubles. It's fewer mess ups. Yep. And it's let's be good enough to hit the 62 yard pitch shot on the green. So we have an opportunity to hold a 16 foot pot and Oh, we missed it. I have a handicap. A bogey is not going to ruin my day. Let's carry on. Yep. Get out of there. (laughs) Adam, more questions. Andrew, I don't mean to take up your whole day slash night here. Do you have some more time for us? Okay, good. Let's do a couple more. Let's keep rocking and rolling. Adam, you got a question? What's the biggest difference technically, impact-wise maybe, between wedges irons say the partial wedges maybe a 40 30 40 50 yarder versus a full out eight iron is there anything that you look at body wise or impact as notably different i don't think there's anything notably different adam obviously the stance is very different it's going to typically be a lot narrower but i don't really i think beyond that if we were to take an eight iron and set up 
as we would to a pitch shot and try to make a full swing, I think it would look quite similar. And if we go beyond that, what does the 3D data say? What does the ground pressure data say? I don't think it's going to show a whole tremendously different picture. I think it's quite similar. So you're not really teaching too much about like the different sequences with wedges and things like that? I am not. I am not. Yeah. I'm not really doing that myself either. I'm not saying it's not valuable. I'm sure there are other coaches who are having a lot of success with that. But yeah, I'm in the same camp as you. Yeah. Do you like, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but... Ha- Please do, train- John. I love that. Well, training aids are like, I don't love a lot of training aids. You've been to the PGA show a million times. Yes. I feel bad for the section of training aids there because I know 90% of them are not going to help most golfers. Is there anything out there that you've used as a coach that you think can actually help people with their wedge games, a product that can work for them? Or is it more understanding functional techniques, putting in the right type of practice? I don't think there's a magic pill out there. I've seen some stuff that can help people for certain tendencies they have, but I'm just curious on your thoughts on training aids. John, I have nothing when it comes to training aids. It's uh, I would go for option B, you know, functional mechanics, develop skill, go and practice. I really don't see much. I cannot even think of much when it comes to chipping and wedging where I can go, ah, that would be fantastic. You know, that's going to work for most people. So what's your bread and butter practice? You know, let's give people a couple of takeaways here and say, okay, Andrew told me to do this at the driving range or the short game facility. If you had someone who came to you and said, listen, I can't pay for Andrew Rice. Yeah. He's too top notch for me. You're a big dog now. I got to, I got to <laughs> hey, work. I charge a lot less than some of those other guys on those I know. fancy well, lists. Uh, yeah. You're, you're on the fan. I know some of the prices charged on the list you're on and they're, they're quite exorbitant, but you're mostly reasonable. Let's say someone can't work with you. They can't go to Savannah where you are. What would you tell them to go off to spend 30 minutes productively with their wedges? I would say this, uh, establish, give some thought on the way to the golf course, go, well, I hit my 58 degree this far. I can hit it this far. Whether the number's accurate or not, let's chop that off and take 75% of that and say, okay, I'm going to not use this club beyond that number. Your second most club, you're going to chop it off at 90%. You've established now in your mind, you've got a general idea as to what your pitching zones are. Okay. Full swing with your third most lofted club. And so now you're going to think about what distances make sense in the mid portion of each of those pitching zones. Go out to the range, take three alignment rods with towels on, put a towel or a head cover on top, pace those distances out and practice hitting those shots. Practice, start to get to know your core distances. For me, it's 50, 75 and 100 and that sounds very neat and tidy. It just worked out that way. But if I were to practice, I don't, but if I were to practice and need to become a better pitcher, that's what I would be doing. Certainly around the greens, nine ball drill is going to be a great one to go to. Chipping around the greens, keep that variety. Go and pick those nine balls up, put them down in a different spot and repeat. Just keep moving around and you're hitting different shots all the time. You're challenging yourself with variety around the greens instead of There is a time and a place for block practice. I'm a big, big believer in that. We need to stand there with a pile of balls and just hit, repeat, 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 repeat. Working on mechanics, taking ownership of mechanics. But if you've got decent mechanics and you want to just get better at delivering the goods when it counts, 
do that little nine ball exercise, go and work on those core distances with your wedges. I know those two things are going to help. Yeah, that's how I try and structure my wedge practice now is I do the blocked to cement the distances and the technique. And I have to yep. revisit this. It's something I need to refresh. I use my SkyTrack at home or at the driving range. And then, you know, if I am going to spend some time at the short game facility, now it's testing time. You know, let's see how yeah. quickly I can recall those numbers and make, because that's what golf is. You're being tested, yes. especially with your wedges. It's saying, here's this lie. Here's this distance make it happen. It's not here. You've got 55 yards. Here's 10 balls. Do it over and over and over again. As we know, golf does not work that way. Adam, any other, uh, rapid fire questions here? This is more of a generalized coaching question, but maybe what's one thing in your mind that you've changed your stance on maybe in the last, I suppose you could give two different time zones from the start when you first started coaching to now that you look back and you think, oh my God, that was ridiculous what I used to think. And maybe something more in the last three to five years, something more recent. So maybe before TrackMan, (laughs) at TrackMan, (laughs) and then two years ago. (laughs) I would say, Adam, initially I worked for David Ledbetter. Um, We both did, yeah. I take my hat off to David. Amazing trailblazer, somebody who really did ultimately a lot for people like you and I. He just opened so many doors and he brought attention to coaching and the value of good coaching. Early on, there was a way of swinging and it needed to be that way or it was no good. There was the textbook and I, as your coach, needed to get you to match up to the textbook as best I could get you to, or it was not going to work. I think we are much further down the track in the coaching realm as far as understanding goes. I think we've got a long ways to go, but I think we're much, much further than we were 20, 30 years ago. We understand, I understand that a swing doesn't have to look a certain way. It's just got to be able to function on repeat a certain way. And so I'm not so much looking for this pretty Adam Scott look anymore. I'm looking for this pretty Adam Scott bull flight nowadays. I don't really care too much how it looks. So your bandwidth that you talked about, that that tunnel analogy is much bigger now. And I suppose now with, you know, TrackMan and things like that, we know what creates function. Whereas I think 20 years ago, it was almost a mystery, right? It's like, well, all we have to go on is a lot of swings have these similarities. Let's make everybody look like that. Whereas now we can say, well, no, this player is just hitting the ground early. These are the options that I can do to change that. And they don't have to look a certain way, which, you know, some people call it matchups, functional combinations, whatever you want to talk about. Yeah, it's... Uh, whatever you want to call it really. But yeah, it's, uh, I'm very similar to that. Cause when I first started learning golf, it was kind of Tiger Woods era and I was videoing his swing and freeze framing it and trying to put myself in his exact takeaway positions. And yeah, it's uh, interesting how we've come along. We've come a long way. We have a long way to go. Where do we need to go? We need to understand people. We need to understand uniqueness. We still need to understand some stuff about the golf swing and what makes things work. I think we need a lot more to understand pertaining to skill and that very fine, precise motor patterns that people are able to control so, so well. And skills contribution to overall outcome. 
Uh, it's something that's very, very difficult to detect and difficult to measure other than just looking at the ball and going, oh, that was good. Oh, that was good. But why? <laughs> Let's do a very quick overview of this. If you had to, because people always ask like, oh, how do I spin the ball on the greens? I know you did your research spraying your clubs with water and friction yeah. and premium balls. If you had 30 to 45 seconds to explain how people can spin the ball more around the greens, what makes it happen? Clean contact between the club face and a cast urethane golf ball. That's Love how it, it happens. Uh, it. That's how it happens. How can we do that? Let's keep your clubs clean. Don't play with range balls or balls that you find out on the golf course. If you're looking to flight your wedges down like you do, John, 28, 29 degrees and have them come into the green and go skip, skip, stop, you're going to control the ball that much better. It's got to be a premium golf ball of which there are many options yeah. available to us nowadays. And that's really it. The golf ball doesn't know you're not a tour player. If you strike it cleanly and correctly, it will respond as if you are a tour player. It's really that. It's clean contact. If you can get a nice tight fairway, understand that the club will typically brush the grass as it's arriving at the golf ball. So if the grass is wet, if there's debris, little grass clippings left over on the fairway that you're hitting shots from, those are going to be trapped, typically get trapped between the face and the ball and compromise that friction. But if you want to spin it, just do a little test. Take some old premium golf balls, put them up on a low tee, clean the face of your wedge, and just hit some 50-yard shots and watch how much lower they are, and you'll be able to feel that that ball's really going to have some good check. And I think I have played pretty much every turf condition at this point. I've been fortunate enough to play some really world-class courses and tournament conditions. I also grew up playing municipal golf courses, you know, local parks. And, you know, when you watch the pros on TV, obviously they're playing with the freshest of grooves on their wedges, tightly mown fairways and impeccable greens. I think a lot of golfers get frustrated that they can't hit those nippy pitch shots, but I think the turf conditions don't allow it for most people. You know, if you're playing on shaggy fairways that are, you know, you're going to have a lot of grass getting in between the golf ball and the face. So that's strike one. The greens might not allow it because they're just not mown a certain way. So I know you've done a ton of research on different turf conditions, but like, what do you think is like the situation? How does that affect that? I'd probably answer the question for you, but let's hear your thoughts on that. The be it matter or moisture, Whatever gets trapped between the face and the ball is going to reduce friction. And one thing you left out in your description of tour players, John, is let's keep in mind those fairways are manicured perfectly, but they're also vacuumed. They <laughs> vacuum those babies. And so the clippings that are lying there in the grooves, those get sucked up. And so there's very little that can get trapped between the face and the ball that's just if the fairways are dry, of course. There's yeah. very little that can get trapped between the face and the ball. And so these players can hit these really sexy shots. And I think if we were given access to those type of conditions, we would also hit some pretty sexy shots. We wouldn't be able to get the face on the ball as predictably, as frequently as they do. But when we hit a good one, it would look just like their good one. 
Yeah, I've been surprised by it a few times where I've played for some run out and the ball stops. I'm like, oh, what the heck? And it's because I'm playing on, you know, a perfectly manicured golf course sometimes. And then other times the ball just kind of releases. But I think that's important for people to know is that, you know, the turf conditions they play on will dictate how the ball reacts on the green. And of course, don't get frustrated when you can't play those shots. As Adam, Andrew said, they're they're yeah. vacuuming. I didn't know they vacuum. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that. They got to make it perfect. Keep your club clean. I hit the ball from the fairway. Um, drive it in the fairway. Lay it up in the fairway. And use a cast urethane golf ball. If you can do that on a fairly dry fairway, you're going to hit some lovely shots. Awesome. I think I've checked off most of the questions on my list here. I've got one more that will allow Andrew to plug Coach Camp a little bit. I just filmed something for Coach Camp as well. But yeah, you can tell us a little bit about Coach Camp. And the question is, what's one of the coolest things that you've learned from Coach Camp, from all the great instructors that you've had on there? In this He's going to insult era. 95% of the instructors who showed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to be very diplomatic, John. I'm going to be very diplomatic. In this COVID era, Coach Camp has had to be online. And that has its pluses and minuses. The pluses is we can reach a lot more coaches all around the world. We can have a broader spectrum of coaches that present to us, much like yourself, Adam. But... I would say some of the best things I've learned is about the people, is about the people behind the persona you see on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube. And, you know, I think of Gigi walking around Savannah with George Gankus and traveling around Europe with Chuck Cook and Joe Mayo. Just fantastic experiences and learning a little bit more about who these people are really has been tremendously enlightening to me. Always learning swing stuff, coaching stuff, but I think just the ability to spend time and get to know these people has been really cool for me. We got to get the maestro on here. He's gone dark on Twitter. I've got his number. <laughs> no. I can get him to IHOP. I know that. I need to arrange that, actually. We're both big IHOP fans. so uh... I must say, much like you guys, I miss Joe. I love Joe. And I miss seeing what he has to say and Joe sharing some of his stuff as passionately as he did. Every couple of years, I'll pick up the phone and go, Joe, you ready for a return yet? And he's like, nope. Nope, not happening. Not happening, Brother Andrew. <laughs> then I go, okay, I'll, I'll try you again in a couple of years. So I think let's wrap it up there. We've taken enough of your time. You've answered our questions. I'd love to have you back. I mean, you have so much knowledge on other parts of golf. I hope to have you on again. So give yourself some plugs here. You've invested your time with us. Where can people find you? What can they get from you? Talk about Coach Camp. Where are you? Thank you very much, John. If you're looking for me, just type in Andrew Rice Golf and you'll find me. I teach golf in Savannah, Georgia. I teach out of the Western Savannah Harbor. Great spot. I do a lot of golf schools, typically in the spring. I'll do some in the fall, but typically in the springtime when people are looking to dust off the clubs and get ready for the season. Coach Camp is a coaching seminar that we run for coaches and golfers. And online this year, as I just alluded to, you can find out more information if you go to coachcampusa.com or simply go on my website, andrewricegolf.com, and it says, what is Coach Camp? Click on that. You'll find out more. We've got a tremendous lineup with a great 
lineup of coaches, including Adam Young, coming at you this year. And so looking forward to that. That is available online. You can view it live and you will also get access to the recording. So you can find whatever you're looking for pretty much at andrewricegolf.com. But thanks so much, guys. I appreciate the opportunity to share and banter with you. This time has flown. I hope we haven't taken too much of anybody else's time. This is a long form podcast with it with a joe rogan of golf yeah i I, (laughs) careful with that one adam i don't know yeah (laughs) he's in some hot water lately but anyways listen i also want to say thank you to you in this public forum we have here because when i started practical golf seven years ago i mean people still don't know who i am but people really didn't know who i was seven years ago and i did reach out to a lot of people for help and information And naturally, a lot of them would ignore me because they're like, who the heck are you? And you were one of the people who took time out of your day. You're a busy instructor. And you helped me with a lot of different projects I was working on the site and gave me access to your information. So I just want to thank you for that because I think you are one of the best communicators in the industry and you're a true professional. So I just wanted to take that opportunity because you're someone I've learned a tremendous amount from. When people say, what do you learn from online? Your name comes up you know, Adam's name comes up. So thank you for all of that. So there's a little love fest for you. John, thanks so much. And I must say, it's cool to see how you've persisted with it. You've continued to get better and congratulations on all your success. It's, it's awesome to see. Well done. Well, we love doing it. So yeah, everyone check out Andrew's site, check out his YouTube channel. I mean, you have great, great, great. I'll tell people to avoid YouTube, but like you're a safe spot on YouTube. Like your YouTube <laughs> videos you. are awesome. So let's wrap it up there. Adam, where can they find you? AdamYoungGolf.com. And John, where can people find you? You can find me at practical-golf.com. And thank you to our show sponsor, Shop Indoor Golf. You can find them at shopindoorgolf.com. If you're in the market for a golf simulator, launch monitor, any add-ons like hitting mats, practice nets, give them a look. The technology can be confusing. You can give them a call and their team of experts will help you out. Shopindoorgolf.com. Thanks so much for everyone's support, and we will see you next week with another episode.